Welcome to Re-Engage, the weekly podcast where we watch and discuss episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Our cultural bridge officers dissect each episode as well as the pop culture and world events that took place when it first aired. We're a bunch of Gen X adults returning to the series we loved as kids to see how it holds up. So stay off the grass, kids, and let's re-engage. Before we get into the episode, let's meet our cultural bridge officers, starting with Mr. Eric Gratton. Hello, Eric. How are you? Hi, Kate. I am ecstatic to talk about one completely in the clear pratfall we get from Mr. Brent Spiner in this episode. I'm very excited to talk. Thanks yes. for having me again. Excited to have you talk about that moment. Excited also to have Greg Tito with us here today. Hello, Greg. Hey, everybody. I'm excited uh, for this episode because you get to see a teenager with a full, uh, you know, chest full of hair do a handstand in this episode, which is pretty great. (laughs) Yes. Greg's excited about that. Excited. And of course, Jimmy G rounds out our cultural officers. Jimmy G, how are you today, sir? I'm very well. Thank you, Miss Miss Yeager. And I'm excited to talk about how wonderfully fit all these Edos are. Yes, uh, that is a fit planet for sure. Nice planet. First talking point, even. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That episode, uh, this episode, of course, is called Justice. The air date was November 9th. 1987 i think we're alone now by tiffany was continuing it's blasting of the charts uh which i have a fun story about that uh that's the kind of song my parents when they heard me singing that song said no 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 let's sit down and play you the original of this and they did that a lot in the 80s with a lot of those songs so that i would end up with you know uh of course you know there was never any uh you know urging for me to dislike the version that I liked. Uh, I remember Banana Rama's Keep Me Hanging On. You know, yeah. set me free, why don't you, sure. babe? Oh, that was huge. We, we Exactly. We listened to like three or four or five different versions of that song. Uh, but what is it? Uh, I, rem- I just remember that song so intensely. I saw intensely. him standing there. Mid-80s. Oh, yeah. So mm. many of those covers, you're right. But I think we're alone now, again, is my touchstone with Weird Al Yankovic, which I think we're a clone now. I probably know better than the original. <laughs> uh, because I was, I too was, uh, you know, uh, not allowed to necessarily watch a lot of pop music or watch the MTVs and things like that. And so uh, I somehow was allowed to get into Weird, Weird Al. For some reason, he was deemed okay uh, by my 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 culturally uh, omniscient mother um and uh yeah so i i it's it brings back those memories of parody songs so much well i like to i like to confirm things when i can because i worked in like touring rock music for 20 years and while i never worked for weird al everyone that i know that toured with him and worked closely with him everyone loves the man so that's always a very cool thing I yeah, won't necessarily say that about everyone because a lot of people are deeply despised, but he is not. Well, I think what's remarkable about him is that he has had the same job with the exact same demographic for over 30 years. And his demographic never changes. Like they grow out of it, but a whole new demographic of the exact same age range comes in and and takes this place 
Uh, it's like moving sand out of the way, wet sand out of the way, and the rest of the wet sand just sucks up underneath it <laughs> and takes yeah. the place of the void. Uh, it's it's incredible. It's rare to have someone do something what they're doing for four decades, and he's reaching that point very soon, if not yeah. already. And I uh, never, I didn't really care for him when I was younger, uh, but well, I, you'd already been too old for it. You I was already too old, aged out. but. Um, I did have a lovely uh, couple hours on my father-in-law's back porch shoveling snow, listening to uh, a podcast with Weird Al on Comedy Bang Bang, and he was absolutely Oh, he's hysterical. fantastic. Um, so I, that is not where I thought that story was going. I had a, <laughs> I had a nice, uh, nice experience. Like, I, you know, I knew all of his parodies and was like, oh, that's all right, I guess. Taking other people's music and... You know, cashing in on it, it's cool. Uh, but his uh, that that podcast was. I mean, I I remember shoveling that that uh, that back porch and just laughing hysterically. And he was playing the straight man, I think, in yeah. that in that yeah, thing yeah. too, which made it even better. Where you're like, this is a rare uh, role for him to be playing. He did it yeah. so well. Yeah, very good. I uh, I will say that we could all probably raise our hands when we thought the story was going to. I spent two hours on the porch with Weird Al. To I spent two hours shoveling snow on the porch with Weird Al. To I spent two hours shoveling snow on the porch listening to a podcast Weird Al was on with like, my father-in-law staring at me and throwing so thank snowballs. You, thank you for that little trip, Jimmy. That was delightful. You're welcome. That was a journey. I'm full of. Them. <laughs> Uh, Time Magazine's headline uh, for that day uh, of the 9th was Who's in Charge? The Crash on Wall Street Spotlights, America's Leadership Crisis. Once again, Black Mm. Monday was looming large still in everybody's minds and just couldn't quite break free. Uh, Luckily, we figured out reform, financial reform, and we don't have any of the same problems today. Uh, we learned all of the lessons <laughs> that we needed to learn. Every single one. <laughs> Only a couple years away from the savings and loan scandal. Yes. I think Wait, we should what? just put... Yeah, this, this, the cycle's getting shorter. <laughs> right. Alex there Pete Keaton is. should be in charge. That's who I think. Uh, he's the one who had the most uh, fiscal responsibility out of any character that I identified with in the 80s. Alex P. Keaton. Alex mm. P. Keaton. Baby Republican, yes, I remember. Republican? uh, Well. (laughs) Republican. It's Republican. (laughs) I think you just coined coined something there, Ms. Yeager. (laughs) I I think I did, too. I should tweet that out. Hashtag Uh, Republican. Republican. I'm, I'm standing by it. So that brings us to star date 41255.6. The director for this was James L. Conway, who is a prolific Star Trek director. In addition to Next Generation, he directed for D, uh, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. Hmm. Multiple credits uh, each on Charmed, Smallville, Supernatural, the 90210 reboot, and The Magicians. So he's hmm. definitely carved out a niche for himself. I was especially interested. He has a lot of fantasy in there, which I feel like fits in with this uh, planet that of Edo that we're going to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the outlier there is nine hundred two one zero. Yes, but it makes the re- <laughs> there makes the rest of it even better. Like, uh, good work, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
this was the first script to be commissioned for the series after the pilot episode encounter at Farpoint was written, but due to extensive rewrites that the story went through, it ended up being the eighth episode to be filmed. Writer John D.F. Black used a pseudonym, Ralph Willis, in the credits because the televised episode bore little resemblance to his original first draft script. It was modified heavily by Worley Thorne and Gene Roddenberry. And golly gee, I'm sensing a trend here with all of these first episodes. I don't know if Roddenberry was a fun person to work with. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Does it say which parts? Because, I mean, was Roddenberry the horny one? He was the horny one. Yes, he was the horny one. That's the stuff that's very TOS. Yes. All the sex stuff is TOS. Oh my God, everybody's so on it. The original pitch was a story uh, very much about capital punishment, Mm. detailing a colony planet where capital punishment is handed down as a sentence for any offense except against those who are, who are immune from the law. One of the, uh, right. uh, one of the Enterprise crew members gets killed by a security officer who then gets killed himself by his partner for the unjust killing of the Enterprise crewman. Uh, there's a rebel faction. Uh, yeah. Uh, he explained wow. that um, the premise was of a society that developed laws to prevent terrorism. He said, let's say that what we do is kill everybody who is a terrorist or suspected of being a terrorist. Now the people who have killed everybody, what do they do? And then Roddenberry and Thorne came in and added sexy Edo. How about some And fucking? the godlike entity. So, yeah, very, very different from what he God originally put it, out. God damn it, Roddenberry. <laughs> right. So you almost had a brand new show, like something that would be the next generation. And then Rodberry was like, mm, let's make it exactly like TOS. Let's go back. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, they even write Riker as if he's Kirk Jr. In oh. This. <laughs> he's oh, yeah. horny for days. Riker is yeah. creepy <laughs> in this. Yeah. yeah. He's got he's that shit-eating grin. They, they, the moment they're all talking about making love and stuff, he's like, yep, let's send in the children. Come let's on. do it, man. <laughs> yep. Everybody let's should have go. some sex. Everybody Worf, on the boat. Yar, I know you have some issues yeah. with the way you were brought up, but I think you need to get down there. It's oh. crazy. My, my favorite part about it is that Justice was the second most viewed episode of the first season. And I'm like, well, with those commercials wow. like that, of course it had to have been. Uh, 12.7 million viewers. Uh, <laughs> episode tracks. received mostly negative response with critics pointing to issues with the quality of the acting and the predictability of the plot. Mm. Yeah, I have uh, to say I, I read several fair. reviews and... Every one of them was. They, they put this one in, like, right behind Code of Honor. Oof, yeah. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. I do not remember watching anything in this episode with that glowing ball that's like Gozer out of the Ghostbusters, right? I do not remember that subplot. And it's a big part of the episode. And the whole rest of it, with the, the sex planet of murder... Um, is just imprinted on my tiny prepubescent brain because of the oiled up buttocks that appear throughout. I have no idea that I missed half of the episode all those times watching it. Just half of the episode went right past my head. I specifically remember the like Wesley 
awkwardness because yes. as as I mentioned before with my Beverly Hills Cop 2 uh, story like I was very much in that mode of being like I don't understand I thought we were just playing I don't understand why there's boobs all of a sudden uh, and uh, how to work with it and Wesley has that exact moment when she's like I want you to teach me to play a game and he's like I don't know mm. oh you want to play ball all right sure I can do that Oh, he's so awkward I mean he's so and he's so the poster boy for true love waits at that point too, yes as you can tell he's never even held hands with a girl oh bless him yeah he's got his uh you know friendship ring ready to be given out to anybody who can <laughs> take it at true. that point yeah well in the first person that he meets down in the planet which first of all they know what this planet is all about they they know that this is the horny planet uh, <laughs> they, they obviously back, don't know what it's but, all about but, Kate. well yes <laughs> let, let's be fair but but when they come back initially someone says they make love at the drop of a hat yes. and then tasha for the win says any hat yeah uh so they know yeah. what they're it's like yeah, I wrote down Jordy's goes, these guys fuck, and Picard, like, raises an eyebrow, and then Tasha comes in with, no, 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 but, but they fuck. And then, <laughs> here we are. So it's already awkward that they're sending the boy down there to start with, because we know about this planet. But then he meets uh, Riven, is her name, played by Brenda Backey, or, or ba- it's B-A-K-K-E, who I didn't realize, I, I knew I recognized her, but she was in Hot Shots Part Do oh. uh, as the sexy blonde character. She's sort of the Sharon Stone character yes. in Hot yes. Shots Part Do, right? Yes. And, wow. and also, oh my God, Hot Shots. And also played <laughs> Lana Turner in LA Confidential. So in the worst sure. way possible. That's he, fantastic. <laughs> he is... Uh, he is encounters this woman and and definitely doesn't know what to do so she says let's send him to the other children uh who are also sexed up uh coke fiends as far as we can tell we're not children let's be honest too like they they are 30 year old men and women (laughs) yeah well let's they were just shorter let's talk about the outfits that 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 they're wearing (laughs) That all of them are wearing on this. This is an amazingly costumed episode. Continue, please, Kay. Yeah. Tri- triangles of fabric. The the, the costumes remind me of an audition I had in New York, in which I was invited in with all male performers, not knowing what what I was supposed to do until I get there, and they asked me to take off my shirt. Every other guy. In this room, and we're literally standing against a wall with yeah, our shirts yeah, off. Totally. And every guy in this room is so good looking, <laughs> I want to make out with them. They are pretty. <laughs> like they're just really good looking guys. And they they say, Jimmy, can you take off your shirt? And I go, <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Everybody needs a laugh. <laughs> Uh, and you know, I was like a buck thirty-five back then. And <laughs> that's I bring that up because the costumes are so skimpy, and most of the guys are very—they look good, and the women all look good in them. But the security people, like what they felt like I did when I was asked to take off my shirt, like really? <laughs> 
Why don't you get yeah. him to play the security officer? He'll look good in this. I look like a 40-year-old dad who <laughs> wants to show up his nipples. Like, it was crazy. Yeah, they only cover the belly button. <laughs> they just carve out directly to the nipples like and they, the love handles. Just they, show me nipples and they love put handles, it, yeah. and that's what I want. They put it on their body, and then the costumer just cut it all the way. Okay, let's see this. Let's see some of this over here. That was Gene Roddenberry. He just took the scissors and was like, do it like this. And <laughs> With his make it a pattern. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> the network will love this. We'll stay on the air for seven years. I have to say, I kind of wished that Data had gone down with that initial group because I would have loved to see fully functional Data in yeah, this But we already had, we already had Worf. You can't yeah. have two. Well, that is true. You can't have two of the same comedy shticks going on. And Worf, Worf yeah. nailed it. Like Worf he was absolutely nailed it. Perfect in this. Was there also like, a, is there a dick joke in this episode? Oh yeah, about well about him ravishing women like yes, human, where he's like, human woman. And Riker are talking, right. and then and then Riker says, "Those come from anyone else." They might think they were bragging. Yeah, and, and then Biker even goes like, "I don't. I'm not going to go any farther. Like that's right. it. That's all yeah. I can engage with." Right, and Riker the only reason is creep, it, fuck, yeah, yeah. shit, creep, creep, creep. Yes, and it would have been creepier were it not for how perfectly Dorn reacts to it. Like he mm-hmm. never plays into it. He lets what's happening be the joke, and he doesn't nod to the camera <laughs> or do anything. He just does his war thing, and I think it says a lot for why this guy, who was the last character added, like. Worf was a was a was an afterthought character they threw in after they had developed everything else and he lasted more than any other character in Star Trek history he's been on more episodes and more franchises than any other character and I think hmm. Michael Dorn has a lot to do with that that he he just played his character and and it became classic and this is the beginning of us I mean we've seen his one-liners you know before and mm-hmm. in this one, it carries on. When he says, nice planet, after the nice girl gives planet. him a really, really big <laughs> hug, he says, nice planet. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. But he's, he's the one who figures it all out, right? With her him and Tasha, where they're like, wait a second, hold on. You uh, execute on every crime? Yeah. And then I, I like that he had some agency in this episode and was like, no, wait, hold on. We've got to do something. Wesley's outside right. by himself. Right. No, he handles it perfectly. And you're almost like, Wow. You might be a really good security chief <laughs> in your future. If something happens to the other one, <laughs> before before Worf figures it out, uh, we we have the moment where everybody sort of goes into the pleasure palace, as right. it were, uh, yes. and they all split up. Which I feel like only dangerous right. things can happen when you right. split up. Uh, I want to know how you play. There's a there's a silver ball game that is being played by a bunch of people <laughs> who have silver balls in their hands. They take their hands, put them behind their backs, wiggle them around, and then they go, ha, and they show the silver balls in their hands. This is a game I want to know how to play. I assume that it is a strip game. <laughs> <laughs> Those with no balls to have played. to show their balls? Yeah. It's played at every yeah, single Star Trek convention. That's ever existed, but only in the hotel rooms after 10. <laughs> and, and not with silver balls, as it turns out. Anyone want to play justice balls? <laughs> I want to say that I'm impressed in this episode in that they take it 
the way Barbarella does, and they make it nice and trashy for all genders. They're like, here we go. Here is taut muscular flesh that we will linger on as yes. we move the camera through and we just whatever flesh passes the camera is what we'll linger on and i'm like you know it creeps me out a little bit more now than it did when i was 11 or whatever but uh i i appreciate the all-inclusiveness <laughs> of the camera work throughout this i i'm not so sure i appreciate the homogeny of this planet it is right. definitely oh, <laughs> super white well, and not I'm just sorry, white, yes. but all blonde. That was the call. You got. You got to put that in. The, that was like they're looking for you know fifteen actors plus extras who are blonde, and you could sell that they cut a few corners when oh. people were like, "Okay, you're a little bit brownish blonde." Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Watching this though, and I, I'm maybe I'm I'm projecting something for my wife, uh, but she has always just never found uh, blonde men attractive, and so I'm I, I'm like, man, I feel like this is. A weird planet because they're, no, they're the these, ugliest of the the males. It just it, 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 it feels not like 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 the 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 women are getting they a short trip. Piro tool and who else? Nobody. <laughs> right. A bunch Dolph of Aryan Nazis. That's who. Bowie. Bowie. I grant you. Bowie. I grant you. Bowie. He might have been died. Right, maybe he might have two been more. Died. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So I I don't know did you did, were the men in this attractive at all I I couldn't really tell uh it was so late 80s so many oiled up muscles it reminded me of those great um uh, aerobic competitions of that time period <laughs> yeah. like that these yeah. they all just had left like the filming of one of those and they are all carpooled <laughs> to the studio together so that they could be in this episode they're gonna get physical. <laughs> yeah so we find out that we're on this planet that sort of uh the, the closest i could come up it, it sort of has panopticon rules right where you don't know if you're being watched but the understanding is that you're probably being watched maybe kind of but not really so there's this sort of open-endedness to to the rules, but you just never know when you're going to be seen by the by the long arm of the law. The or punishment I say the, zone. The short shorts of the law. <laughs> the short shorts of the law. Yeah, Eric. <laughs> well, I think that it touches on one of the weirdest things about them coming down here in the first place is they heard about this planet for the first time today. They didn't know it existed. They're passing by and they're like, hey, while we're passing by, Data saw this class M planet that's really hot. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so pretty. Right. And they're like, well, do they know about aliens? And we're like, no. And we're like, well, let's <laughs> get in there and fuck some shit up. Right. They're pretty, you said. Yeah, everything's really pretty. <laughs> and so they went down there without really having any sort of conversation about the security of the whole situation. Right. I mean... All the research Riker did obviously was just a summation of how attractive they were and what they could do <laughs> pleasure wise. And for whatever reason, how this is a great place for kids. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, nobody on either side stumbled upon this one very important rule of. And they call know, out Tasha on it where she's like, you were supposed to do your homework and you didn't. <laughs> Right. Like, and well, it, she was busy. Let's let's face yeah, it. Right, Tasha right. can get some. She was she was busy. She was getting busy. Well, 
there's so many things about this episode that fly in the face of the Prime Directive. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not to mention the fact that they just flat out are like, we're not going to listen to the Prime Directive right now. But also, Riker, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Picard takes that that woman to the ship so that she can see her planet from space, which is just fucked up. <laughs> it, it turns out that it is the first of four times that Picard shows a native female her fl- planet. What the fuck, dude? Like, that is so <laughs> I was going to say, up. that's a big trope. That, I didn't realize, right? but that does happen a, quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, so let's unpack this. Let's really talk oh, about the Prime incredible. Directive. Let's talk about the Prime Directive and <laughs> what it really oh, means. Oh, here we go. And uh, uh, how, how uh, in later episodes, they, co- they come back to this a lot. This one, they utterly fail in even defining what the Prime Directive is, why it's important, and how it should be implemented. Because one, like you said, he takes a, a person who they don't have space travel. Their god mm-hmm. does, but they do not have space travel. So... That's clearly a violation of the Prime Directive because they're showing technology that uh, uh, they don't have. And then two, how can any, whatever the Prime Directive is, is you not interfering with their, uh, with their technology, with who they are, not allowing them to kill one of your members because they broke a window isn't going to disrupt where they are technologically. It may piss them off but one who cares two do you want a planet in your federation who kills people for any infraction and not just stated infractions moving literally moving barriers of infractions so this wasn't off limits yesterday you could have broken this yesterday and lived today we got to kill you it's always I mean, sad the prime directive isn't really uh it, it's a laughable thing in this episode Eric. Jimmy, I think I can explain away all of your concerns by reminding you that it's very pretty down there. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? You're right. Yeah. Yep, you're right. I'll take a chance. Do you remember remember (laughs) when they first beamed down and met the contingent of people and they said, oh, can you run? And Wesley turned to Commander Riker and goes, Commander Riker, they want to know if we can run. And Riker goes, can we run? What do you think, everybody? Can we run? And I thought it was going to go on for like two more times before they all started like lightly jogging 100 yards to the next thing. And it's just such a wonderfully awkward exchange. All I know is as soon as... As soon as I found out it was a running planet, I would be out. I don't care how pretty you are. I don't care how attractive, how willing you are. You want me to fucking run everywhere? Deuces. I will be in the ship. Deuces. Plus, their game design is poor, right? Not not right. having a clear game about where to hide the silver balls. Where and to hide that. the silver balls. <laughs> silver balls. But, so uh, we, Jimmy, the whole the Prime Directive thing, I do want to kind of investigate a little bit more because... I don't think they under, like the writers of the show and the producer of the show really understood what the prime directive meant until like a few right. seasons into this. Like I they agree. just kind of call it out because um, you're right. They at, at this stage, they just blatantly disregard it. And mm. this episode's kind of about that to a certain extent of like, is it OK? Is it justified right. to to break this prime directive? But it's it's a thing that the show is is flexing and trying to figure out right. in the process. And we're just watching it happen. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I just think uh, it's, I, I don't think that changes my assessment that they failed. They failed. This, yeah, this one. But they later come to it and it's it's handled fantastically. Uh, and this one, it's, you know, they, they had the opportunity of, oh, there's this being, this other entity out there that is actually, they, they're manipulating another people, which is, I would say, in a violation of the prime directive. Uh, and two, it's kind of scary because it's very powerful. And then they focus the whole thing on, oh, we don't want Wesley to die. But really, the, the bigger episode was we're afraid of these other people. What mm-hmm. These people could kill us. And it's sort of glossed over with, you know, but Patrick Stewart is brilliantly, you know, debating like, uh, you know, do I go against a prime directive? What does it mean? How can I do it? When the real... The real fight I thought was, wow, where there's a force out here that could really do us some damage, and that's scary. And I don't, I don't know what to and do. The, and to think about how much they go into later episodes uh, of, of Star Trek, like how much they hide the fact that there is this hyper hyper advanced society of the Federation, you know, with like what. Uh, tractor mm-hmm. beam and all types of stuff just to keep them all hidden right and they're not doing any of that they're like basically like here's a ship we're bigger than you we got phasers we can kill you and you know they keep going back to the idea of like well i thought you were friends we just thought you were friendly travelers uh coming to talk to us but all of a sudden you're imposing your your will and your your way of life on them and it's it's like they violate it from from the jump Well, I think it's a failure of both the form and the the genre and the execution. Like, if I can say both and then give you three. Um, I I want to get a little historical with the genre, too, and, and, and look at the fact that this kind of serial um, sci-fi travel show is based so heavily on the Western uh, travel show. And, you know, that is based mm. so heavily in the white colonizer point of view that it, it's hard to to kind of tell whether uh, Gene Roddenberry was completely successful in adapting this genre and mm-hmm. keeping that that approach of the, the colonizing force visiting different towns, visiting different civilizations, visiting different things every week and trying in his way to subvert it into some sort of thing to also self-reflect on whether we should while consistently breaking it and always doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you got to question whether it's effective at all in what what we're hoping was an right. attempt to say the right kind of thing, as opposed to just leaning into this colonizing message of we're going to create this straw man society that's obviously wrong, so we can have our uh, yeah. better morals put on top of it. They totally leave people minutes. on the other planet, right? Like they had just dropped people off. Who Although they do talk about at the end of the episode that they're gonna. That they're gonna pick them up. Well, they do they say they're gonna pick them right. up or that should we pick them up? Like I, I remember him asking oh, that's true. the Edos, like, say, should we, right? Should we, should we pick go them pick them up? And they don't say anything, so they take that as well. They didn't say anything, so right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do think this episode tries to have some interesting conversations about uh, sort of uh, the the trolley experiment, right? Like, mm-hmm. what is one life versus the life of you know what the life of one versus the life of many. Uh, he says, would you choose one life over a thousand, sir? And Picard says, I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that, which is like 
a kick-ass statement, but it also doesn't answer anything. Like mm-hmm. it's 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 starting a really interesting conversation but much like the prime directive sort of leaves it hanging yeah i i mean it it doesn't investigate it enough and it just kind of maybe it has to do with the fact that the episode had one writer and then it got muddied through more influence uh because it just it doesn't even seem executional wise it makes any sense like for example when when picard brings uh the ito up to the ship she's directed to act so submissive and unhappy with what's happening. Like she does not like being on the ship. And that seems to be not really remarked upon. Like they're just kind of like, Oh, we're cool. Whatever Picard's doing is fine. Nobody, nobody questions him. Nobody kind of, you know, tries to figure it out. And so I think there was just too many ideas in this episode to really kind of have it make a consistent moral commentary. Well, let's talk about something I think incredibly successful, and that is anytime we get to see Data learning more about how to be human. In this particular episode, uh, before we even get to the wonderful uh, pratfall that we get to talk about, um, he's accused of babbling. Uh, and just a beautiful exchange between him and Picard about what the nature of babbling is. Uh, and then, and then uh, Crusher comes in. She's so upset. She drops Jean-Luc's name. Again. You don't want to execute my son. I will not allow that to happen, Jean-Luc. Boom. The name comes right in. Uh, Data says, most interesting, sir. The emotion of motherhood is, compared to all others, felt by... She shuts him up. And then he says, you're right, sir. I do tend to babble. <laughs> Fucking beautiful. Like, just such a gorgeous moment. Yeah. I love Gates McFadden's delivery in that where she's just like, just shut the hell up. (laughs) Storms out of the room. It reminded me of uh, the cook from Benson, that kind of same energy of like, I heard that. Like she was, you know, it it had a very sitcom feel to it. (laughs) Uh, But let's talk about, let's talk about that fall. Oh, uh, yeah. Just put, put, a, a clown in a situation where his body loses control of itself and just put a camera on him. And it's, I, you know, I geek out over Pratt Falls because it's so fun and to see someone do it well is a joy because it looks like he actually falls and it looks like it's not the stuntman and I love stuntmen, uh, stunt people, but uh, he does like a full half turn with uh, all limbs spread wide and just you know, half fall completely extended. Like, it's a great little pratfall. I'm proud of the man. And he had a CGI bubble on his face the whole time. <laughs> it's true. And Eric... Not everyone can do that. Eric, did you know that uh, Jay Luden, who played Leader, the 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 main um, person that they talk to, that there's the girl and him, and he's the one who gives a speech about... Well, since you're so much powerful than us, maybe you should just take them and we'll say a, you know, more powerful race took us from us barbarians. He's actually a certified right. fight choreographer. Oh. Uh, certified by the National Society of Fight Choreographers, and he's done over uh, 20 sure. productions. Yeah. Good for he him. Went on, I love he it. Went yeah. on, he went on to become an assistant professor of theater at the Met- Metropolitan State College of Denver. Where I'm sure he drops this little thing of like, oh, no big deal, but I did this tiny little show. When I was on, when I was on Remington Steel, Absolutely. they asked me to. There's, I had a coach Brent Spiner on this pratfall, and he just wouldn't get it until we, the cameras were rolling. 
<laughs> we do have another guest star of note, uh, Josh, Josh Clark, who later went on to play Joe Carey in Star Trek Voyager, was an unnamed oh. tactical officer. He was in cons. And if you actually look at um, the timeline between Next Generation and Voyager, uh, people say it could actually have been Joe Carey. Uh, you know, that, that character could have been All early, right. early on fun. in his career and then made his way to Voyager. But they did disavow that. Didn't they eventually say like, oh no, this is, even though he's unnamed, that was another named character? But, well, but, well why can't but, we let people have their fun? Great. I agree with you. I would have done it if I was the, <laughs> the, the, in charge of the Star Trek. Didn't they do the same thing with Tuvok and Generations? I know they, they do a thing like that every once in a while when, when, so, when someone who has a co-star has become a regular where they do a time travel thing and try and uh, retcon it in a fun way. And I, I'm for it if they can manage it. Well, I've got yeah. a whole series of fan fiction that relies upon that narrative. So I'm just going to go ahead and keep pushing it forward. <laughs> It's valid. That's Forward a valid point. that to me. <laughs> so, uh, so here we have arguably uh, the second horniest episode um, of uh, After the Naked Time. Uh, uh, any parting uh, shots on this? Uh, watching it now as an adult, uh, perhaps thinking back to it as a, as a kid. I'm with Eric in that I remember this episode uh, clearly uh, everything except for... <laughs> that second storyline of the god uh, up in the sky. I did not remember that either, but uh, Wesley almost dying? Are you fucking kidding me? Of course I remembered this episode. It was <laughs> just clearly uh, in my mind. Uh, but but what, what sort of parting thoughts do we have of this episode? Uh, my parting thought is the little speech John Lou gave at the very end that convinced the Edo God to let them go. He could have given at the very beginning. <laughs> but it saved a lot of time. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't his best speech or most well thought out. So uh, it's kind of it could have come earlier. It wasn't learned through through sorrow or hardship. It was you know. He says, he right says right. there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. Even life itself is an exercise in exceptions. And then Riker gets it in there. When has yeah. justice ever been as simple as a rule book? Boom. I think he must have agreed with you, number one. <laughs> Riker is creepy in this episode, though. You can't give him a line like that to give him, to forgive him for right. the whole rest of the episode where he's right. just the weirdest cat. Such. By the just... way, do you remember when they were figuring out <laughs> I, talking about how you and I, Kate, don't remember the, the Edo God subplot, that when they introduced it in this, I was like, how did I not remember this awesome mystery that they're setting up? Like, they're, they're all just kind of staring at the planet, and Data goes, hey, everybody, d don't be alarmed, but, like, look over there. <laughs> right. like, I don't, I don't see anything. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's weird. There's something big there, but I can't prove it, but I know it's there. And they're like, Data, how do you know it's there? And Data goes, <clears throat> hey, you guys out there? And the thing, like, appears. <laughs> and it's like, that setup is pretty cool. And, and like, I, I'm going to rewatch it a couple times to see if that's now my favorite of the plots of this episode because the intro is so good. Yeah. Uh, my my final thoughts is uh, kind of a writerly structurey thing. I really liked the open, the cold open in this uh, because it sets up everything 
really well and very economically. Like, of course, all the openings kind of do that. But for me, I just really like that a lot of the action happens off screen, like the the planting of the colony, the idea that they're you know doing some some shore leave, and then you come in with the away team that had just been there and had just kind of reported everything. And then Picard has that great line of like, well, let's hope it's not too good to be true. And it, it just, yeah. it's, it's a really economical 90 seconds of television that I appreciated from a, from a writer's perspective. Nice. Well, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we hope that you will join us next week when we will be looking at the battle. Battle. Ooh. Join us then. Oh, yeah. More Ferengi whips. I want to see more of the whips. <laughs> Get your pants wet. <laughs> yeah. Get your whips wet. Hey, you guys remember when Captain Picard sent Jordy to look out the window? Yes. yes. <laughs> we know we need a real look. Hey, Jordy, go he, look out the window and tell me what you see. You couldn't see it through the uh, the main view. It had to be an actual well, not, window. Not, not enough pixels. You got to go to just where you <laughs> right. see it. The resolution wasn't good enough. Right. It wasn't good enough. <laughs> Hang your head out like a puppy and go look at this thing, Jordy. It's cold, I can tell you that. It's cold and I'm seeing a lot of blue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy D is, of course, at the Jimmy G on Insta. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and Greg underscore Tito at Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for the saucer section to re-engage. <laughs>